Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, this is the final episode of season three, but never fear, Catherine and I will endeavour to bring you bonus episodes regularly whilst we squirrel away on season four. Those bonus episodes will, of course, include our favourite listener question episodes. But for that, we need your burning questions, which you can send us via our Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories. And while you're there, give us a follow so you'll be the first to know when the next season is ready to drop. A little side note on today's episode. When we recorded this, I was actually coming down with my first and touchwood only dose of COVID. So you'll hear my voice might be a little bit, well, as my kids would say, even more annoying than usual. So apologies for that up front. Now, for this, the very last episode of season three, we're looking at one of the rare school shootings committed by a female assailant. It took place on May the 20th, 1988 in Winnetka, Illinois. Do you know what? I think it might actually even be the first female shooter we've covered on all three seasons of Stop the Killing. The shooter murdered Nicholas Corwin, an eight-year-old boy, before shooting other students Earlier that day, she had tried to poison someone and set several fires. Now, in this episode, Catherine and I are joined by retired FBI agent Phil Andrews, whose life story intersects with the Winnetka school shooting in a very unexpected way. Phil, welcome to Stop the Killing podcast. It's wonderful to be with you guys. Can you tell us a little bit about you? I think you and I have something in common. Well, I am also a retired FBI agent. I spent 21 years serving in different roles in the FBI around the country and a little overseas. Phil, could you help our listeners out by giving them a little bit of the before? What is it that we're talking about that is now known as the first school shooting? Absolutely. So we're talking about May 20th of 88. It's known as the Winnetka shooting or the Hubbard Woods shooting. And it involved a elementary school, which was unusual. 
and also a perpetrator who had a long history of psychological issues and interactions with the community, both with law enforcement and individuals and a, you know, a tumultuous divorce with her husband. But she had been on the radar of the community for many years with bizarre behavior. I was 20 years old. I was a sophomore at the University of Illinois. I was captain of the swimming team. Very proud of that. Very impressive though. So this occurred in 1988. You were home at that time. Why were you home? Literally, my last exam was on the 19th. My brother picked me up from school. I was looking forward to a summer doing an internship in the state's attorney's office. So I arrived home the night before. And what we didn't know is that uh, there was this attacker that had been planning an attack on the community for some months and had acquired uh, several firearms, thousands of rounds of ammunition completely legally, despite there being concerns with law enforcement, there being concerns within the community, and even concerns within her, her own family about her psychological stability. And she had a very detailed plan for how she was going to attack and cause mayhem for the community that day. And I should say, we have a school shooter who's a female. That in and of itself is very unusual, but, you know, she had a lot of mental health challenges. Yes. So she did have a very detailed plan. You know, this is pre-Google. This is pre-internet. So she went to the local library and learned a little bit about cyanide. She learned about making a cyanide gas device. She learned about poison. And she went about preparing poison treats that she sent around the country and concentrated delivery, mostly on the North Shore and the Northwestern University community. And she built a cyanide gas device, which was very rudimentary, some gasoline and cyanide, and it was meant to create a cyanide gas. And she tried to detonate that in a day school up in Highland Park. As you know, Catherine, we would call this a weapon of mass destruction, and this could have been devastating. Thankfully, it failed. She also planned to go set fire to the home of some folks that she had sat for. And, and in preparation for attacking the grade school, she had sent a note to the community inviting people to bring their children there sort of like a talent discovery day where there were going to be some folks there to review children to see if they could cut it for TV. And she was trying to get even more children than just attended the Hubbard Woods School there. And it's not clear exactly what she imagined when she got there, showing up with two firearms and hundreds of rounds of ammunition, but she caused a lot of devastation. That morning, I recall that she actually picked up the young kids who she babysat for and took them to the school at one point. And that kind of started her day, but it didn't start your day. You know, so I wake up that next morning and the house is pretty empty. You know, it's helpful to kind of see the overlay of the map here, but the school that's attacked, the Hubbard Wood School, is literally one block away from the Catholic grade school and Catholic church that I grew up in. And there happened to be a funeral for a fireman that had been struck by lightning while fishing on Lake Michigan just days before. And this plays very importantly into my involvement because in the course of her escape from that crisis site, she tries to leave the way that she came in, but the intersection is blocked by police vehicles who are assisting in the procession for the funeral, which is just getting out. 
And that sends her in a different direction and winds up at my home. She's there pretty early when school is just shortly underway. Yeah, her day is pretty specifically executed. She first goes to this day school and tries to ignite this cyanide gas device. There was some indication that she had the children that she was babysitting in the car, that she just ran into the school, tried to ignite this. She interacts with a custodian, sort of chases her out of the building, device fails, and that results in a law enforcement call. Then she drives to the home of the children she's sitting. She visits with them for a little bit. They're leaving town. They exchange gifts. She goes out to the car. She gets a couple of gallons of gas. She douses the basement threshold and torches it, trapping the children and the mother in the basement. The kids are able to escape through a garden window. The fire department is called. They respond. And there is a kind of a loose description of like who may have done this, but she is already at the Hubbard Woods School, having traveled there with three firearms, brings two in from a bathroom where she has an encounter with one second grade student and shoots that student as she exits the bathroom. And then she goes into a second grade classroom where she opens fire, basically at point blank range on second graders. She escapes the building and jumps in her car and is redirected by this closed intersection, crashes her car on a dead end street, bails out with two firearms, and then heads through a wooded path. And that's really where you know my involvement sort of picks up. She just, by happenstance, comes to your house. Does she come through the woods? And- well, you know, we don't have a lot of details on that. What we do know is that the mother has just come in from this funeral We're in the kitchen of my childhood home, and we're talking about this funeral and how powerful and moving it was that the first responders came to attend to the funeral. And then this person comes through our back door and says immediately something about, you're my hostages. And and my mother and I sort of look at each other laughing. And my first impression was pretty accurate. I thought she was a neighborhood sitter that was involved in some game with kids that maybe my mother would fill in the blanks, but it only takes a few moments for me to kind of look at her and then look at her hands and see that these guns are real. Maybe she was five, two or three and disheveled and sweaty, literally had a trash bag wrapped around her waist like you would a towel coming out of the shower. But she also had two guns in her hands. We just knew this was dangerous. What was going through your head at the time? Well, I'll tell you my first thought. My first immediate thought was, this is going to be a good story that I can't wait to tell <laughs> my brothers. Right. Like, this is just wacky. And we, <laughs> we just kind of had that relationship very close with my brothers. And I just knew that whatever was going to go down, that this was going to be a good story. And I couldn't wait to tell them. Wow. And I think my second immediate thought was, this is dangerous. And I want to protect my mother. And your mom, what was going through her mind? She was at first, like, just a little annoyed, you know, like, this is rude. This is improper. And then seeing the guns, my mother, you know, was frightened. And we sort of moved together and I kind of positioned my mom behind me. You know, honestly, my mother then did what she did any time that an Andrew kid came home angry, upset, 
exhausted. She went into empathetic mode, offered food, and then just became an empathetic ear. Obviously a very practiced move for her with seven kids. And that is not what she expected. You had no idea what had just happened at the school. No idea. I mean, there was a funeral for a fireman. There was going to be sirens going. So it just didn't seem out of place. So what happens next? Your mom's trying to be empathetic, trying to feed her, clothe her. How does it play out? Well, it just turns into dialogue. And she says something to the effect that she shot a person that attacked her in a nearby street. So we're just sort of listening to this story. And at one point, my mother looking at her in this trash bag, and I think really this is kind of my Catholic mother looking at a woman in a halter top that is not wearing a bra in a kind of a translucent trash bag in front of us. She's just like, she can't be comfortable. And there happens to be, as there always was, a wash basket for my sisters in the kitchen. And we offer her a pair of shorts out of this wash basket, and it's placed on the counter in front of her. And she goes to put this pair of pants on. And as she's doing it, she sets one of the guns down on the counter in front of her. And I reach over the counter and I take that gun from her. And we have this moment where she's now extended the other gun and pointing it at me. And she also has a pair of shorts about halfway up her thighs. And and the trash bag has been dropped to the floor and she is naked from the waist down. And it is a very awkward, but dangerous moment. And I put the gun in my pocket. I put my hands up. I step back with my mother and I tell her that we're all going to be safer if we put these guns away. And there's a long pause and she finishes putting on the pants and the gun is never mentioned again. This moment then de-escalated and she finished getting dressed and really, you know, like Fast forward to me being at a crisis site for the FBI, if this is what I was reporting to the on-scene commander, that for a pair of shorts, we just got a gun, I would say that this is trending very positively for the negotiators and a peaceful resolution. And frankly, like we didn't get a lot right that day, but the one thing that I think that we did get right, and I really credit my mother with this because, you know, she'd been trained by seven crazy children, is she got the empathy piece and the listening piece right at the most critical moment where it could have been the most volatile and allowed just a slight de-escalation in what could have been just an armed invasion that resulted immediately with gunfire and murder. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. 
because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. What did that de-escalation look like in that kitchen? This went on for about 90 minutes. You know, the shorts for the gun and then additional conversation about what she needed. And what we learned is that she lived nearby, that she did want to have a conversation with her parents. And we offered an opportunity to get on the phone. And again, this is 88. This is a wall phone. So she's awkwardly on the phone with a gun pointed at with us, but having this conversation with her mother. She said that she'd done something terrible that people wouldn't understand, that she was going to kill herself. And I had a chance to talk to her mother for a short time and told her that, hey, look, your daughter's here at gunpoint. She says she's been attacked. We need your help. We'd like you to come here. And uh, not getting much connection there with the mother for all kinds of reasons. But she didn't lean into coming over and helping us. She didn't say, hey, do you want me to call the police? Give me your address. No, she didn't say that. And, oh my gosh. Uh, and we encouraged her to come and she said she didn't have a car. Oh. And I asked her very specifically, has your daughter done anything like this before? Does she have a history of this? And she said, no. Wow. And, which she did. Yeah. And, and then the phone was disconnected by the attacker. And, you know, that was actually a pretty down moment of like, hey, that didn't really work. And again, you know, kind of flipping back, you know, the crisis negotiator in me now would be like, hey, that's a pretty high risk thing to allow an assailant in a hostage situation to get on the phone with a loved one. And, uh, you know, we may have actually facilitated a goodbye call that she had not considered before. And uh, like I can see the the fingers pressing the digits as clearly today as then. Did you feel at that time after the phone call had happened that help was on its way at any point? Yeah, I think just the opposite. And as this phone call's ending, my father comes through the back door and then things become very tense. My father is very shocked. And we are just sort of, you know, like, let's calm down. And then he relates that there are roadblocks set up. They're looking for someone. And she is very amped up at this point. And now the gun is at arm's length, extended, finger on the trigger. We're really at a higher level of threat. How long did it take your dad to process what was happening? It took a while. I mean, I went over, I sort of explained this, Dad, we got a situation here. And hoping to de-escalate as much him as her, I did not worry about him trying to physically engage her, but I did worry about commands 
that would escalate. And because she had said that she was worried about the police, I interceded with, hey, like one way to keep the police from coming here is to send my mother out to tell them not to come in here. And we talk about this for a little bit and she agrees to it. But my mother's allowed to leave and goes right out to the street where she's able to tell police that uh, her husband and son are being held at gunpoint in their kitchen. My father and I now in here talking to her and all of this is happening while there is a huge first responder response to the main crisis site. You know, six children have been shot. Some of those first responders literally run from the funeral to the school. And some of the equipment that responds steps out of the procession and goes to the school. So, you know, get goosebumps as I'm telling you this, that this funeral, as much as it kind of created a trajectory that involved me, it also put a lot of necessary personnel and equipment very close to the crisis site and shortened their response time. One shot in the bathroom, five in the classroom. So two different scenes, no idea who is injured, a lot of chaos. Do you think that once your mom exited the house and and told police there was an armed assailant inside your house, that police quickly put two and two together? You know, I think to degrees, but there was also no indication that anybody had acted alone, that because these multiple crisis sites, that there was an assumption that perhaps there was accomplices. And that was not really run down till, you know, hours and days after this was over, that there wasn't accomplices because of the sheer magnitude of the things that were caused. But all of that's happening outside. You've got no clue any of that's going on, have you, at that time? Is there any indication at that stage that you kind of feel like, oh, somebody's coming, now mum's out of the house? I'm pretty confident that my mother has made it out and that the, the authorities know what's going on inside mm. the house. I am very concerned that she may start shooting or yeah. that any kind of entry would result in shooting and that my father uh, and or I would be kind of caught up in the crossfire. So we actually continued to kind of engage her. I think that this is a much more kind of an ag- aggressive engagement. I mean, not in terms of tone, but in terms of like, hey, it's not safe with you with that gun. And we paint this picture of like, hey, you can stay here and you can hold up if you're afraid and you can come out whenever you want, but we're leaving. Phil, was that the dynamics? I mean, how did, the dynamics must have really changed when it was you and your mom in the kitchen versus you and your dad. I think that mindset of it's just a matter of time and that she feels like it's not so safe, you know, physically or psychologically for her was sort of playing out. And we're at gunpoint with somebody that is very anxious. I assume that she is as aware that the police must know where we're at. And we still don't know anything about there having been a school shooting. I mean, there is a big gap there. She's telling us she's been attacked. It doesn't really matter. She's got us at gunpoint, but we do know there's a manhunt. And so my father and I are just a little more directive in saying that you can stay here, but we're leaving. And we make a move to leave. And she extends the gun pointed at me. And I say that I'll stay if she lets my father go. And she allows this. So now I'm just one-on-one with her. 
once my father's out of the house, I am looking for an opportunity to disarm her physically. And I am keyed on her eyes and really the barrel of that gun looking for that opportunity. And just maybe she looks away or she, she just gives me a split second where I can do that. And there's a noise outside and her attention goes there. And I think this is that opportunity. And I see a flash and I hear a pop and I realize that she's shooting at me and I immediately dive to my left and I'd land on the floor in a kind of a windowless pantry that is off the kitchen. And, you know, I got the brother who became a cop. I mean, this is the same brother that I used to spar with growing up. So if we would get in a tussle, I would barricade myself in the same pantry and wait for him to cool off and then make my quick escape. So that's exactly what I did. And I hit the floor in this pantry. I scurry up into the door jam. I put my foot in front of the door, expecting, you know, shots to come through the door or at least to try to, you know, push through the door. And I wait for a moment and I listen and I don't hear anything, but I feel some constriction in my chest. And I look down and I see that I've got blood oozing out of the right side of my chest. And I realize that I've been hit. What I don't know is that the bullet struck me in the right side of my chest. It punctured both of my lungs, put a hole in my esophagus, grazed my pericardium, put a hole in my pancreas and my stomach, and it got lodged in my left lat. So internal devastation is very serious. But initially, I feel it as constriction and difficulty breathing and not even really a lot of pain. So I moved to the other side of this door thinking that I've got to get out of here. And that's when I remember that I've taken this gun from her earlier. So I awkwardly, with a bloody hand, sort of fish this gun out of my pocket. I have no idea whether it's loaded. And I kind of open the door, looking out, gun first. And I look into that kitchen and she's not there. So I move out. And I think that she must be behind this counter, expecting her to jump out and there to be a firefight. I'm standing for a moment in the kitchen with this gun. And I, that's really where this constriction is now very painful and I'm really having difficulty breathing. So I moved pretty quickly out that same back door that she came in and uh, to the front driveway. Where was she as you exited that door and went around the house to the front? Yeah, I, what we learn later is that she's gone to an upstairs bedroom where within a few hours probably takes her own life. We can't say exactly when. But she does go up there. There's plenty of attempts to try to engage her over what turns into a five to six hour standoff where they're trying to engage her. But all indications are that a short period of time, she goes up to an upstairs bedroom and takes her own life. And where are you during all of that? That You've been hopefully swept up by first responders. You know, it's funny, the evolution of that. My perception is that I run out of the house and I am met by first responders. And I actually, when I return as an agent to the Chicago area, I give a presentation on this incident to a law enforcement audience. And it happens to have a few of the folks that were responders that day in the audience. And I get an audible, that's not what happened. As <laughs> I'm telling the story that only I know. I believe. Wow. <laughs> and, and I have the opportunity to actually get some other vantage points that saw me running out of the door and into the driveway. And they are, they are police officers who are, are shocked to see someone 
running out of the house with a gun and I am disarmed and proned on the driveway where then I am met immediately by a police officer who who asks me what happened. And I can hear him calling into his radio that we've got to get this kid off the driveway. He's turning blue. And um, somewhere in the distance, I can hear my father shouting. And then I'm just in this mode of I'm having a terrible time breathing. I feel like I'm suffocating. And what I'm hearing on the radios is that it's not secure. They're not willing to bring the ambulance up where it could be in a clear line of fire. And that a lone police officer is there standing over me with his gun drawn. And he eventually goes and gets an ambulance, drives it up. They pull me off the driveway and then they start doing some work. It's very painful, but I'm also recognized that there's absolute pandemonium around me. In our neighborhood, there happened to be a off-duty emergency room doctor who heard the commotion, left his house and literally walked up to me. And he leans in and I can hear him and see him over the oxygen mask that they've got on me. And he says, keep breathing you stay with me and you keep breathing. And the only thing that I can think to say to him, and you can imagine, you know, the emotion and the, is I tell him that I'm a swimmer because one, this is very reminiscent of what it might feel like at the end of a, you know, a race where your lungs are burning. You feel like you're suffocating. You're on the edge of maybe blacking out. And I'm conscious of like, gosh, I wonder if I'm ever going to swim again. If I survive this, I wonder if I'll ever swim again. And, you know, a throwback to who I was at that moment and in and at that point in my life. And he says to me, you stay with me, swimmer. And there was this nanosecond where somebody used the word that probably defined me more at 20 years old than anything else. And we were connected. Wow. That's amazing. Mm. I mean, that's a beautiful turning point mentally for you, I'm sure, at the moment. Did you ever have a chance to talk to that doctor afterwards and tell him how impactful that was? Absolutely. I won't surprise you that the doctor that saved my life, you know, we have four children. My firstborn son is named after him. I am deeply indebted to the first responders that day and very specifically to that officer that hovered over me, that went and fetched the ambulance, and to the doctors and other amazing healthcare staff that really responded with their best that day. You're left with processing this entirely crazy experience. What does that look like for you in the first couple of days, couple of weeks with you and your family? Yeah, I was in the hospital for nearly a month. I had one of the other children that was shot at the Hubbard Wood School uh, down the hall from me. And unfortunately, Nick Corwin, who was killed, was also taken to Highland Park. He was killed immediately, but that's where he was taken. I mean, initially, it was just kind of fighting for my life, days in the ICU, very touch and go in those first few days, and really very drug-induced. Very loose memories of seeing my brother and family members, I think there was a lot of disbelief. I was shocked to know all the other things that took place. There was guilt that because it took a while to know that that took place before and that I didn't have an opportunity to stop it. There was some depression over like that a lot had been taken from me. 
that uh, though I survived, like what was before me in terms of being able to get back the things that I wanted to return to school and swim and get on with my life. But I was the beneficiary of just in incredibly healthy systems that a, a community that deeply cared about me and my family and you know all of those that were injured, incredible healthcare, even though rudimentary and this sort of being the first kind of mass school shooting, that there were a lot of kind, thoughtful, empathetic professionals that kind of leaned into it. And I think two probably really important components is a large family with an amazing sense of humor and kind of a high expectation of getting me back in the fray. And that also being true of my swim team and my coaches, the, their support and really recognition that I was still their teammate. I was not treated differently and the expectations on me for returning back in the fall and you know, carrying my weight weren't different. That I think maybe more so than anything else, I was able to kind of return to a place that was really important to me. And it was also very supportive. And one of the things that I recognize, not everybody is fortunate enough to have all those healthy systems when these tragedies happen. There were a number of folks that were shot in the city of Chicago the same weekend that I was, and none of those systems existed. And the spiraling that takes place that if you're in a violence-affected and under-resourced area, the cards are already stacked against you. But this was an example of really a lot of healthy systems supporting me. As a kid, you thought you wanted to become an FBI agent. After this incident, did it affirm that decision or did it make you hesitate? I think that it really did affirm a lot. I think the thing that I took away from it is really informed the kind of FBI agent that I became, that really recognized the importance of connecting with people, the importance of doing the right thing in the right moment for someone going through a tragic or you know, chaotic or crisis moment. And that was really true, not just of witnesses and survivors and victims, but also of perpetrators. You know, when you're putting the handcuffs on a white collar subject, this is the worst day of their life. And it is the worst day of their life for those families and treating people with dignity, even in their worst moment. No, I love that because I'm sure you've had this happen to you. You know, as an agent, you arrest somebody and then you hand them over to the marshal's office and they shake your hand and they say, thank you for your kindness. And thank you for the way you treated me today. And it always used to kind of throw me when I arrest somebody and they're going to jail and they're thanking me for arresting them. But I think it kind of speaks to sometimes how we don't see the humanity in the people around us, even when they're at their worst. It's true. Are we closer today to, to being able to prevent something like this from happening than we were back in 1988? Well, there's no question we're closer. And I know, Catherine and Sarah, that this is the purpose of your work. And I share your life's work here. That uh, that became an impetus for me, that that did not have to happen. That was eminently preventable. And I see all of these as opportunities for intervention and prevention we just don't have to live this way. So in all the basic things of denying 
dangerous people access to firearms, of keeping firearms locked up. I mean, that, that is no different in 1988 than it is today. She had access. Her family could have denied her access. They right. were certainly in a position to control that. They did quite the opposite. You know, in all of the data that comes in, you guys cover this very well. You know, 80% of these the guns are coming from home, the easy place for intervention. The early indicators of somebody that is trending toward potentially violent behavior are out there, they're identifiable, and the intervention opportunities are infinite. And I think maybe a, an, another really important piece that I think we just saw kind of a learning from the 88 incident is how we respond, how we kind of surge in the mental health support, the trauma response, the engagement, and really move past fear. So I think a lot of important lessons were learned and unfortunately continue to be learned. I did want to ask, as we do ask all of our guests, if they can think back to the stressful time they went through, if there were moments of hopefulness or heroes that you wanted to point out in this, what was a terrible situation, but we always know that that's also the time when people step up. Yeah. Well, so many to list. I mean, those children were heroes. Five that survived have gone on. Even the children from that classroom that witnessed that, they have been informed by this. And in talking to them, you can hear the urgency and the impetus behind their work in supporting communities and recognizing the ability to connect with people as being so important. I think a lot about the first responders that day, you know, particularly Floyd Moore, uh, Dr. Charles Brown, the thoracic cardiologist that went inside me and stitched me back up. And maybe very poignantly, him sitting on my hospital bed and asking me what I was going to do about this. And that there was just a deeper piece there that, you know, somebody that was very mature and had seen a lot of medical trauma, but also his own life experience with his own sort of journey through trauma and having lost a sibling at a young age, he recognized the importance of me taking responsibility and making this experience part of helping others and preventing it. That's part of recovery. So the kind of very deep healer here not only patched me up and got me on a trajectory of physical recovery, but really challenged me at another level as to the path that I was going to take in terms of impact. So too many sort of heroes of that day to kind of list. And I guess I'd be remiss in, in mentioning my family Sometimes it's harder for those around those that experience this, that get that sort of sense of helplessness. But uh, my family was super supportive in that time and re re remains that way. My, my brother, who was in the police academy, instead of racing to the hospital, insisted upon being taken to the crisis site and supporting law enforcement and helping giving a layout of that building. So like a lot of folks who did the right things and maybe things that were counterintuitive, but it made a big difference that day. Did your mother ever scold you for making her leave the house? My mom was, I think, just glad it was over. 
And I think she was just very happy that we all survived. That was really where kind of her thoughts went, is that it could have been so tragic and that very grateful that it wasn't. Did the FBI ever try to recruit her for hostage negotiation skills? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like they could have learned a thing or two. She would have been great at it, both as a a trainer, but a fantastic role player. Oh, absolutely. My my mother is a powerful role player. The power of a mother. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Phil. Wonderful to be with you guys, too. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.